Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 14 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 14, we're still very much cross-time capering as we discuss the cameo-suffused Excalibur number 14, Too Many Heroes, originally published in November 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Augustin Maas on lettering, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here, through victory in arms, find the grace to draw the sword and be king. We've got an absolutely perfect guest to help us navigate the tidal wave of heroes in this issue, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, the usual hello from your friendly neighborhood hosts. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about sex and gender in comics and other things and lots of academic and other places, including another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, and lots of your favorite comic sites, including Shelf Dust, Middle Spaces, Comfort Food Comics, and Comics XF. I am also, as always, Kurt Bogner's unofficial PR manager, which is an easy job in this issue, as he's an absolute delight throughout. I am joined, as always always by Mav. Take it away. I'm Christopher Maverick, and since I was 14 years old, I was the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And, oh, wait, no. See, you said friendly neighborhood, and that put that in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am an adjunct instructor of English and cultural studies at University of, or at Duquesne University and Mount Aloysius College, two places. Um, I My research mostly focuses on 20th century pop culture, including comics and professional wrestling and TV and fun stuff like that, um, particularly in the intersection of sex and race and gender and class and how that all gets represented in in funny books. And um, today we're going to look at a funny book. <laughs> That's what we're looking at today. This is the this one's crazy. You know, I, I mean, I know I know every episode I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm excited to this one. This one's crazy and it's nuts and strap in. It's a good one. Um, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University at the campus, the University of Waterloo. Uh, and I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big academic study on Chris Claremont's work with a social media wing in the form of um, daily tweets uh, about Claremont stuff. And a book wing in process. And a book wing in process. Our stalwart crew is joined this week by intrepid fellow podcaster Sean Ross. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. I uh, love the show. I've, I was telling you guys that I listen to it on my Friday night runs. And so it's nice to meet you all in person. We've had several conversations, one-sided conversations. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I appreciate you welcoming me. And I just couldn't be more excited. This is a really fun issue to talk about. This is your chance to correct everything that we've done wrong. Now that you're finally on the podcast so nope. we'll give you plenty of chances to do that <laughs> i i'm not a well actually kind of guy so you guys have been fantastic <laughs> oh a little introduction to you sean is a lifelong comic book collector and educator who's worked at the elementary secondary collegiate and state levels sean is also a podcaster who tries to convince his wife that talking about comics justifies all the money he spends on them <laughs> do you want to tell us like what i mean specifically i knew you through the secret wars podcast but do you want to just give us a little off the top of some of the podcasts that you do that make you such a perfect fit for this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, 
and I co-host Secret Wars and Beyond, where we discuss every issue of every Marvel Superhero Secret Wars miniseries. We started with the beautiful gem that is Volume 1 that everybody loves because they read it when they were 10, and Mm. everybody's dialogue ends in exclamation marks, and Wolverine's (laughs) claws are out the entire time, which leads to some interesting (laughs) questions about how he uses restrooms. And it's just amazing. It's just this silly romp. Uh, We've covered Secret Wars 2, which is Jim Shooter's slow descent into madness, and he he took us along (laughs) with him. And then we are now covering Secret Wars 3 by Jonathan Hickman and Isad Ribich, which is, in my opinion, the greatest crossover in Marvel Comics history. So it's a super fun wow. show. Uh, I also co-host a show called Welcome to Astro City, where we talk about Kurt Busiek and Brent Anderson's beautiful Astro City series. And then uh, The NeverEnding Reading Pile, where we just kind of trip hammer through comics. We pick an issue we like and we talk about it. And that's just a fun nostalgia free-for-all. So yeah, a lot of lot of talking about comics to, again, like you said, to justify my, my comic club collection, or as I refer to it, my daughter's college fund, (laughs) because that's where it went. (laughs) When she asks if she can go to school, I will say no, because daddy needed X-Men 137. (laughs) Well, I mean, not to put words in Andrew and Mav's mouths, but I mean, did I get a PhD so I would have an excuse to just read comics all day? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It was definitely a factor. That's the scam. I mean, the fact that people, you know, I've somehow convinced the world that this is an actual job. And (laughs) (laughs) and 10-year-old me is ecstatic about it. I just want to, I mean, I'm impressed that, you know, someone is on more podcasts than me, you know, good for you. (laughs) So Sean, being the Marvel expert that you are, I'm going to assume this isn't your first time encountering Excalibur. No, no, I bought it off the racks. In fact, I still remember during the fall of the mutants, Marvel had done this insert into those comics, this white paper insert with Captain Britain, you know, flying majestically. And it said, you know, coming soon Excalibur. And it was all very mysterious and very exciting. And, you know, little did we know what we would actually get so i i was buying it off the rack and have the entire series and have loved it for a number of years and again super excited that you were doing this show and that i get to revisit the issues because i'm reading along with you guys again so it's it's a lot of fun yeah i know that we've all, we're all having a lot of fun rereading it even though we've read it several times do you have any sort of thoughts off the top about where in your perspective of someone who reads so many superhero comics and particularly has a vested interest in crossovers and that kind of thing where do you feel excalibur kind of fits within the x-men franchise like how did it feel different or similar to you when you were first buying it back then or when you're thinking about it in retrospect now? I think it's an interesting question and it, it kind of actually ties to how I discovered your show because a- Andrew had talked about it on the Claremont run and I, I read those tweets. In fact, it's actually usually how I start my day. <laughs> I, I look at those tweets every morning. It's, <laughs> me too, it's a me really, too. Yeah, it's a really great fun way to start the day. And you had mentioned, and I didn't even read the tweet. I was kind of scanning quickly I w- and, and I just saw, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. And I immediately knew it was an Excalibur reference and I kind of laughed at myself. You know, I can't remember why I walked into a room, but I can still remember this silly, you know, refrain from a comic book from 30 years ago. And you guys were brilliant in naming your show because I think, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, it's it's not just a refrain from the series. I think it's actually its mission statement. Like I think the point of Excalibur and I think the shot it fires across the bow when it comes out initially and, and it lasts all the way through Claremont Davis and then Davis Davis is that it is, you know, where the X-Men is intended to make you gasp with its pathos, gasp in astonishment because it's so pathos filled and filled and it's such a it's such high drama and so you know operatic, soap operatic in its way. Excalibur does that with wonder. Like it wants you to feel, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. It wants you to feel the sense of wonder that you feel when you're a kid and you encounter something amazing and you encounter your first comic. And it, it wants you to approach it with that same sweetness, silliness, innocence, tongue-in-cheek sort of playful nature. And I think that's the role for me that it, it really plays in the X universe is when it landed, you know, the X universe was very controlled by Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, which was great at that time. And you had the X-Men and you had New Mutants and you had X-Factor. And it, and it was just, again, like soap opera, soap opera, soap opera, which is wonderful because that's why I collect them. I like, you know, I, I, I like that surrealized fictional element. And then when Excalibur hit, it just announced itself like, well, I'm just, we're not going to be the soap opera book. We're going to be the book of wonder. And we're going to be the book that makes you think and laugh and play. And we're going to remind you what it's like to be a kid, but not in a juvenile way. We're not going to speak down to you. We're going to run through the field with you. And so I, for 
for me, that's always the place it it holds. And it I think it doesn't get enough credit for opening up the Xbooks, taking the lid off of them so that they didn't just have to be, you know, pathos, 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 that they could be so much more. And I actually think you can draw a line from modern Xbooks, the, the Hickman Krakoa era, where they're really exploring different themes in each book. And they're really not afraid to take the Xbooks into different directions directly back to Excalibur. Oh, Sean, you really had me there. And I was just like tearing up at your beautiful description of Excalibur. <laughs> and now I'm just feeling like the frustration with X of Swords that Excalibur, the original members of the team were like not involved in the event <laughs> at all. And it was so Excalibur and it was so frustrating as an Excalibur fan. There were other things that that event did that were fun, but it was just like, oh, Saturnite Otherworld, why are Kitty and Kurt not involved? It was so frustrating. How but... is Kurt not a marauder? That's the one that always uh, yeah, sticks to me. I just love that you, uh, you got the title. Like, so behind the scenes stuff, when we were doing the show and we were coming up with the show, I think I pitched the originally as, as the title. And I was like, well, I just like stupid jokes. No one's going to get this. <laughs> like, this is going to be, this is so obscure, but I love it. And then, and then you just explained it all. So, you know, yay, we reached one reader. <laughs> no, that was, that was beautiful, Sean. Seriously. Thank was, you so much. It was much. great. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a better job than, than we are at explaining the, explaining the joy of this series. But that's why we have fabulous in. guests on. Yeah. We're 14 episodes <laughs> in and we're still not really explaining the quote. So, you know. <laughs> that was the best that was the best that you've done i mean and the book hasn't either so you know anyway we're going to come back to some first impressions in a moment let's do our issue summary so i know many of our spectacularly smart and wonderful listeners including sean are reading along with the pod but since a lot happens here as usual we'll start our discussion with that plot summary at the beginning of excalibur number 14 too many heroes we're still in the middle of wrapping up the last story with kitty narrowly avoiding marrying a young prince named william in a magic and medieval fantasy infused version of london the members of excalibur are on the presentation balcony of Westminster Castle as William's betrothal to Kitty's doppelganger Catherine is announced. They're all clothed in colorful finery that some enjoy more than others. The announcement becomes a reception with the usual love triangle and physical comedy hijinks. Kitty is upset because Alistair is dancing with Rachel and both Kitty and Brian notice the rapport between Kurt and Megan and Brian crashes into a buffet. The party breaks up when Rachel tars and feathers this dimension's Nigel Frobisher who's apparently just as awful as his 616 counterpart. Shortly thereafter the party breaks up even more surely as Widget starts drawing energy from Rachel and Excalibur's train starts to glow and the team's off again on their way to another dimension. The train crashes at the foot of the Excalibur lighthouse but it doesn't feel right. The water's too low and there's a strange energy in the air. Then the radio starts to rumble and they realize they're about to be hit by a tsunami. Rachel's energy is drained from the jaunt but she still manages to shield everyone in protective cocoons an instant before the wave crashes. After the wave subsides everyone's okay except Rachel who's missing. Suddenly a young man with silly floppy hair steps out of an Avengers Quinjet. It's none other than sidekick extraordinaire Rick Jones who offers to take them to New York to search for Rachel. Excalibur take Rick up on his offer, but they're not in the air for long. The plane collides with a yellow wall that, as it turns out, isn't a wall at all. It's a person, specifically Hank Pym, whose growing powers have spiraled out of control, causing untold damage along the way. An enraged Namor shows up to kill Hank with a bazooka and succeeds, but causes another tsunami. Captain Britain shepherds the Quinjet to a chaotic Manhattan, where it feels a little bit like we're back in Inferno. The team is greeted by a Deathlock version of Captain America, who explains that all Earth's superheroes are caught up in acts of vengeance. Basically, they're all fighting each other for nebulous reasons, much like the actual Acts of Vengeance. Excalibur split up to look for Rachel, interacting with various alternate universe versions of familiar Marvel heroes along the way, including Doctor Strange, Daredevil, the Hulk, and Iron Man, but not any X-Men characters, though we do see some X-Men creators, which we'll talk about. Kurt and Megan, meanwhile, visit Damage Coordination Headquarters, where they acquire new clothes, Kurt being re-outfitted with his old costume, while Megan acquires the new green costume she'll wear for much of the rest of the series. Things eventually come to a head when Rachel butts out of her cocoon, being held at the Fantastic Four's headquarters, and the World Eater Galactus shows up, declaring this Earth too silly to exist. Excalibur manages to make it back to their train and activate Widget just before Galactus consumes the planet, leaving behind a smoldering house populated only by everyone's favorite reality-warping green imp, the Impossible Man. Once Galactus departs, the Impossible Man snaps his fingers and brings back all the fighting heroes. So, the cross-time caper continues with doppelgangers and cameos galore. I'm very curious to hear first impressions about this issue, some of which we've already gotten to in terms of us all liking this issue quite a bit, but I imagine this might have been a particularly exciting or confusing issue to encounter the first time. But let's start with you, Sean. Do you have any particular, like, do you have a memory of encountering this issue the first time? Or is there anything that particularly stood out to you upon rereading this so many years later? I do. I remember the trick of the cover because it looks on the front like Excalibur is facing the actual heroes of the 616 Marvel Universe, you know, Thor or uh, Doctor Strange and Medusa and Hulk. And then you flip to the back and you get the silly versions, which are just delightful. You get Modoc 
Murdoch as an egg. You get a Quicksilver reference to a famous Flash issue where he's, you know, uh, made into a different body type. And it's just a, you know, silver skateboarder. It's a lot of fun. And I remember as a kid, really, really loving the play on the Marvel Universe and, and, you know, enjoying this just silly romp of a of an issue. And it was a little bit, I think this was an issue for me. The, the cross-time caper was certainly a moment for me when I was very young and collecting this, where I finally just, you know, learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, right? Like I learned to just say... <laughs> Forget it. This is an X book, but it's not an X book. Go with it. Stop waiting for high drama and just lean fully in. And I think I remember the cross time caper in particular, this issue and the one couple preceding it really getting me and hooking me and making me a lifelong fan of this book. So so there's just such joy and and rereading it for the show. It reminded me of that joy. It just it's it's a really I mean, how often can you say something is a, a truly delightful experience? But reading this book is a truly delightful experience. Aww. Other first impressions? <laughs> You, Andrew and Mav were both reading this series when it came out as well. Do you guys remember reading it for the first uh-huh. time? Go ahead. Oh, oh Hotmead. It's <laughs> the official handbook of the Marvel Universe <laughs> Deluxe Edition. <laughs> oh, Hotmead. It is, so for listeners who don't know, and I think I used one image in one of the YouTube videos a few weeks ago, but the official handbook to the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition was this encyclopedia of the Marvel Universe. It is basically a character reference for every single character of note in the Marvel Universe. They'd done it a few years earlier, which was just the official handbook to the Marvel Universe, and then they redid it. It's um, edited by Peter Sanderson and Mark Grinwald. It is brilliant. I love it to this day. I literally carry around a master PDF of scans of it all on my <laughs> iPad that I look at frequently every time I have a question. Yeah, I get that it's 30 years out of date. I don't care. It is the crowning achievement in all of comicdom. But the 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 covers of all of all of those issues are this long landscape connecting covers of all the characters of the Marvel Universe sort of running to the right in exactly this sort of frame uh, framework yeah. that this issue is on. So when this came out, issue 14 of Excalibur, I see it and I'm like, oh my God, yes. Because like Sean just pointed out that you don't know that they're joke characters from the front side. You have to go to the back side to pick that up. But the idea that they're all running towards the, this is what they're running to. And this is the, you know, this is the handbook to the Marvel Universe. That's what I, you know, I hadn't even opened it yet. I just, it's just looking at the newsstand i was excited from just that and then once we get in and we see that it's this weird meta narrative thing that is all about you know what andrew and i were geeking out about uh, about the mini world's history um like three episodes ago that really comes to a head here but just first impressions it's all about this cover this cover is brilliant it is so good andrew do you remember encountering this the first time um i have a sad story this was this was a gap issue for me I, i've talked oh! before about it. <laughs> Growing up in Thunder Bay, I didn't have good access to comics, and I really wanted the Cross Time Caper. This was the one issue that I couldn't get, so I only read this like a few years ago. Oh, Andrew, that is I know. so sorry. <laughs> I missed like the peak. Um, but other than that, I would just say that like once you come at it from the perspective of sort of the behind the scenes power dynamic and struggle between Byrne and Claremont that was going on often in Byrne's comics in this era, this is maybe the first time that Claremont fires back. Uh, yeah, and we know anecdotally that um. Louis Simonson and Anne Nascenti restrained Claremont. He, he often wanted to reply to Burns' cheap shots in other books uh, and Nascenti and Simonson would say, no, they're not here on this one, I guess. And he finally took his shot. <laughs> Pretty big one, too. Well, since since yeah. you brought it up, I was going to bring it up later, but do you want to talk about the, the cameo in this book specifically and what's going on there? Uh, yeah, so we get the image of the creators, Claremont at the X desk, and um, I think he's wearing is he wearing an A or a 4, Burn? An A. So, a. Yeah, yeah, I think. Exactly. Because this yeah, is West Coast a, Avengers era for him. Yeah, but there, but at this point in time, there is a very intentional merging of the four and the A in um, uh, yeah. in Marvel Comics because Avengers and um, and Fantastic Four are sharing access to Avengers Island run by Stingray, where they all keep all their boats and and, and spaceships and stuff. Weird nerdy <laughs> tidbit that I, I just that. happen to know <laughs> because that's how my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, so you've got the image of um, Claremont being served by Hellfire club women uh, and burn being served by she-hulk um the implication being that they're both driven by sexual desires which would be very offensive to burn um who i mean he flat out says at one point that he didn't like claremont for all the sex stuff but he also wrote she-hulk 
So, I was just going to yeah, say, did he not read Sensational She-Hulk? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then we've got the pods and the Fantastic Four, and this is Claremont's revenge for um, the Phoenix retcon. So there's a lot happening here when you read between the panels a little bit. What do you make, though, of Claremont, I mean, telling presumably Davis to represent himself like this, though, like served by the Hellfire women? I think it's a good way to be self-effacing to sort of, I don't know, deny that you're being too aggressive, where you can say, no, no, I'm making fun of both of us. We're still friends. Other than that, I think Claremont might just be a little more self-aware than Byrne. And I don't think anybody would argue with that <laughs> proposition. Byrne's self-awareness is weird. I'm reading She-Hawk right now. Like when it, when this is coming out, I'm reading this and Byrne is self-aware, but Byrne is weirdly self-aware, but not as hard on himself as maybe he should have been. And maybe the rest of the world was being at that time. Like, so he knew what he was doing. And Davis, I, I assume Davis made the choice. Maybe Claremont wrote it in, but Davis makes the choice here to not only have Byrne being serviced by She-Hawk, but he's being serviced by She-Hawk specifically wearing her red chemise of, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, where she is at this point wearing Comics Code approved underwear that does not rip. And it's exactly that outfit. That is an outfit from a very specific issue of She-Hawk. So it's a weird choice. I feel like I just want to go on a tangent about She-Hawk now and just I'm like, well, even just this conversation is making me think of the way sexuality is different in She-Hulk the way it can be subversive but it's not very queer you know what I mean like it's subversive in like a very straight cheesecake way and like I'm starting to think about some of the differences between their approaches to sexuality but that's going to take us off on a huge tangent and probably not a subject for this podcast something I, to think coming about. soon the She-Hulk podcast hosted by <laughs> I do think though it's it's worth noting that you know while Claremont it, you know, includes himself in the scene which I thought was funny it, it is a nice little tip of the cap like hey we're both you know sort of guilty of some of this you know there is that also long running discussion that's become apocryphal between Byrne and Claremont, where Byrne challenged Claremont to create a female character who wasn't super strong and super smart and super capable. I don't know, uh, Andrew, if you're familiar with this, he created a girlfriend for Luke Cage in Power Man and Iron Fist, uh, whose name I'm I'm forgetting at the moment, but it was because of a challenge from Byrne, because Byrne's like, oh, every female character you write is, you know, super capable. And su-. and it's like, well, wow, that's a, first of all, that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing for Byrne to sort of go at Claremont about. But I do think it's interesting because you have both creators being served by women in, you know, relative levels of undress. And so I think there is also a little bit of commentary. And I don't know if it's from Claremont or maybe from Davis of like, hey, you both pride yourself on your your strong female characters. Because I mean, you know, Byrne for all of his faults really does bring Sue Storm, you know, into modern age, right? From Invisible Girl to Invisible Woman in his Fantastic Four run. But I think maybe Davis is taking a little bit of a shot of like, hey, before you two start patting yourselves on the back too hard about how evolved you are in creating your female characters let's not forget that you know claremont you have the hellfire club where the, the you know heroines are all dressed or the villainesses are all dressed in lingerie and burn you have an entire issue of she-hulk that is her jumping rope in the nude like it's you know like let's <laughs> yeah. not let's not get ahead of ourselves boys and so I, I don't know i don't know if it's davis or if it's claremont but i do think it's a funny little inclusion uh that i that i think is is purposeful i was wondering about how much it was davis and how much it was claremont as well but yeah sorry andrew oh no i was just gonna say I, I really like the visual imbalance of them like looking very out of shape sitting down <laughs> uh being catered to by these sort of um, idealized physical beings I, I think that maybe speaks to the idea of like writerly motivation to some degree well what about i want to sort of use your expertise sean to situate some of what's going on here in sort of a historical context of marvel crossovers and to talk a little bit about because this has come up on the pod before but we haven't given it a ton of focus and it's particularly relevant to this issue in terms of what is the appeal of marvel crossovers and like what is sort of the advantage of doing a crossover and what are the disadvantages of doing a crossover in terms of you know character building or economics or various things as a secret wars expert could you tell us a little bit about kind of the genesis of secret wars and since i assume you're a big fan of secret wars like what was the particular appeal of doing that crossover and how did it kind of change how marvel approached their crossovers sort of moving forward yeah absolutely and i think crossovers are such a part of the dna of comics ever since 1984 really moving forward that i think it is an interesting thing to examine and so the first secret wars crossover now it's it's technically the second crossover event in Marvel history. The first was Contest of Champions, and which came out a couple of years earlier. But Secret Wars is really the one that launched
launches uh, a thousand sinking ships, maybe. And um, <laughs> and so it started in 1984, and, and it started as a toy crossover with Mattel. So DC had its superpowers line of toys and with Hasbro, and it was a highly successful line. In fact, I still have super fond memories. It's how I fell in love with Doctor Fate, and the Hawkman figure, you know, swung a mace, and I remember trying to hit my oh. sister in the head with it, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> And so Marvel saw the success of this DC toy line and, and wanted to mimic it. So they went to Mattel and, and, and there was sort of Mattel was approaching them as well. And they said, hey, let's do a toy crossover. Like let's do a let's do a comic book to sell toys. And so people often forget that the first volume of Secret Wars was literally a toy company driven event. And so Mattel ha- held focus groups and they held them with a bunch of boys, you know, age eight to 12. And they said it took to Marvel two things. They said the boys really liked the word secret and they liked the word war so there you go there's your mandate so shooter went and and they you know the think tank at marvel sort of got together and they put together the secret wars miniseries and it's funny because if you read interviews with jim shooter jim shooter wrote it it was drawn by mike zek it was also um there were some fill-in issues as well by bob layton and then inked by scott Beatty. and people have questioned shooter over the years like hey how come you wrote this i mean you had chris claremont you had john byrne you had frank miller you had like a you know murderer's row roger stern of writers and he said well i didn't want to you know raise any hackles i didn't want my writers fighting amongst themselves and it's like keep telling yourself that jim like you also knew this was going to be a giant success and you know wanted your name on it so he gets together and basically his description of secret wars volume one is you take all your toys out of the toy box you pour them on the floor and you just have start having everybody fight each other and and that's about as deep as secret wars (laughs) one goes it's you know the beyonder who's this great power from beyond brings heroes brings villains to a place called battle world says whoever fights and wins gets their heart's desire and then things unfold over the course of 12 issues and Marvel was smart in that they had their characters leave in one issue of their normal books and then return in the next issue often with kind of a needle scratch so you know most famously Ben Grimm is a member Four. of the Fantastic Four. Oh, oh, okay. oh that's not what you're not where I thought you were going to go with it oh, oh uh, no that yeah uh, am I missing the more famous one well no no that's probably the more famous one because it's a big change but because Fantastic Four the status quo changes Thor barely notices that he left oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there are quite a few books where they don't even I mean they hand wave it away but uh, you know so in the fantastic four they leave ben grimm's a member they come back it's she hulk and so it was hugely successful in fact it averaged eight hundred thousand to a million issues sold every month so it was unbelievably successful and for an entire generation of kids it was how they got into comics and, and i remember going to a convenience store and having you know 60 cents in my pocket and looking at what i wanted to buy and it was like well why would i buy a single issue of spider-man with just spider-man in it when i could buy this other thing with all the heroes in it and get a bigger story. And so that event was so successful that it sparked the event culture of comics in, you know, DC had would have Crisis on Infinite Earths, which had more serious ramifications. But moving forward, the crisis title in DC means something big is shaking, you know, some universe spanning time altering event. The Secret Wars title in Marvel means that there's a line in the sand and things are going to be different from before and after. And I think, you know, just to speak to your question about what is it about events, I think it's a couple of things. I think one, it's the idea of the the stakes of it, that if the universe is saved by Thor in an issue of Thor, imagine how high the stakes are if Thor is only one person trying to save the day. So there's a a sense of importance. And I think that sense of importance has deflated over the years as we've gotten events of varying success. And then I think there's also this sort of communal idea where, you know, Marvel is supposed to be the world outside your window. And for many of us, I think growing up, Marvel comic characters and DC comic characters were our friends. Like, you know, like they were the, the people we went to or we read about and, you know, we imagine being or we imagine having their power sets, all these fun things you do when you collect comics. And I think the idea of getting all your friends together, you know, for a big party is a lot of fun. And so <laughs> I think there's this communal drive. I think there's this fantasy piece to it, this idea of higher stakes, of, of real importance. But I do think that Marvel and DC sort of were hoisted on their own petards because the success of their initial events got people hooked on that and they even got their, their mechanism mechanisms, their systems hooked on that. And they started feeling like they had to have an event a year. And then to the point where there were years where there were multiple 
events, you know, multiple events, just back to back to back to the point where you just lose track of them. They become, you know, sort of lost in the ether of, of just, and it, and it alters the line of books because then it's the comic books are just reacting to the events. And as a reader, it can be really disconcerting to the point where a few years ago, Marvel actually made this big deal of being event free for a year. Like the event that year was no event, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. So it's, it's, you know, a lot of fun to, to go back and read them. Again, some of them are a varying quality than others. And it is a nice reminder that it's a shared universe. But I do think that the appeal of them, the initial drive from them has petered out a bit. And, you know, that Marvel and DC both need to probably re-examine the purpose of events and redefine it moving forward. And you maybe see that in the X line right now, where the event is the line itself. It's this very, you know, shared universe amongst the X books, which, you know, is not unfamiliar to the X books, you know, as I know Andrew can talk about with the Mutant Massacre or Follow the Mutants. But, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's sad in a way that it's, it's what's driven comics for so long and fans will complain of event fatigue. But the bottom line is if you look at sales, they're still the top seller. So, you know, what, what is Marvel, what are Marvel and DC supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you're saying really resonates with my feelings about crossovers and as much as, as sort of a more long in the tooth fan, they frustrate me because I'm more invested in the individual characters. And then just when you put them together in these bombastic events, because so many of the events are about fighting, some of the character work that is one of the huge strengths of the shared continuity universe oftentimes get gets lost and for me that's definitely the case in Secret Wars like we see some interesting ramifications in various books but definitely within the event um, but at the same time I got hooked on Marvel Comics by reading the original Civil War and it was sort of exactly what you're describing you know in terms of picking up Secret Wars I didn't know any of these characters like I mean I knew you know Spider-Man just from larger pop culture but I didn't know Captain America or Iron Man like I had no idea I'd read a few comics growing up but just DC Comics because those were the only ones I knew I knew Superman and Batman right and so picking up Civil War I got this taste of all the different characters within that universe and it got me cooked like I mean I started buying weekly comics after Civil War 1 and so it's very effective like both in terms of sales and I think in terms of recruiting new readers if you do the event properly so I'm very sympathetic to them continuing to do these events for those reasons and yet as I become sort of an older fan I become increasingly frustrated by the events right so it's yeah it's just it's such an interesting push and pull and other thoughts about sort of the appeal of events like Mav and Andrew do you like events do you hate events how do you feel about events i personally hate them but i think <laughs> okay <laughs> I, I think the narrative interruption is the problem right exactly as yes. you're saying it's just it's it's too hard for creators to have that interruption but i do think they have a rhythmic effect because then it feels like the marvel universe itself is building towards something um so like we've we've riffed on um x of swords here before i kind of like the build-up to x of swords i like the anticipation of x of swords and then i got x of swords and was a little disappointed with it but i, I think it's a good way to engage the readership i mean it's been 10 years we joked at the top of this episode that like i've convinced the world that i can read funny books for a living and i do not understand fear itself it it makes no <laughs> oh, yeah. sense it is it is garbage it is it is a garbage crossover that exists only only because we need to do a crossover this year and we're it, it's horrible um even the cover banners were ugly for that event. yes like literally they ruined yeah. perfectly good covers with a horrible banner and and if and for the listeners who don't know what this is don't bother googling it's it's, <laughs> it's garbage it like you don't care i hated everything about that crossover and it was pointless and that's sort of my that's the negative part of crossovers that said you know a different era but what got me hooked on the marvel universe i mean i was reading comics here and there but when i decided okay i'm a comic book reader from here on out was randomly buying you know my mom would let me go and buy one comic book in the store whenever i was there and one week i got um secret wars number four beneath a hundred tons of rock stands the hulk and he's angry like that's that's what got me in and i was like oh okay there's a mountain and the hulk is trying to save everybody i need to know what's happening here and for exactly the reason as Anna, I didn't necessarily know who all the X-Men were yet. I knew a little about, about a bit about them. I knew the popular ones from what I'd read, but this is making me go back and try to understand who these people are. I didn't know much about the Fantastic Four at that point. They'd shown up in Spider-Man here and there, but that's all I'd read, right? So this gets me into this universe and that's a good thing. And I do, I like Secret Wars a lot. There's um going back and reading Secret Wars and then reading 
what was actually happening in comics around that same time, everyone is horribly out of character. Um, <laughs> like yeah. like the, the Colossus, the Colossus that exists in Secret Wars and oh, no. cheats on Kitty is an entirely different person than was appearing in Claremont's X Men at that time. Which is not to say that I don't believe Colossus could have cheated. It's just it's an unrecognizable character. Shooter has no idea who Wolverine is at all. It it, it is weird, but I do have a nostalgic love for it you know a lot came out of it i love that she hawk became a member of the uh of the fantastic four i have a very serious love for the things adventures on battle world post civil war uh, secret war there's a lot that i like about it and there's a lot that i like about crossovers and then you know you fast forward five years and now we're at the end of 1989 beginning of 1990 and acts of vengeance is starting and it's stupid like acts of vengeance the the driving plot line for acts of vengeance is all the villains in the world get together and by all the villains i mean you have dr doom and the red skull and then for some reason the kingpin of crime you know you've got these world dominating heroes and a guy who's a mob boss in new york city and loki god of mischief they get together in a room and they're like hey superheroes are kicking our ass so why don't we trade off because you know the reason you keep losing kingpin is because spider-man and daredevil know all your tricks so uh, why don't you go fight the fantastic four yeah that makes sense and they convince <laughs> like all these other villains to just like randomly attack alternate heroes because then they can win what are they trying to win it doesn't matter they're trying to win the fight like nothing about that series made sense at all but it was the crossover for that year and i think claremont is sort of trying to make fun of it but dude you just wrote inferno yeah <laughs> like oh, you no. know you're, you're, you're kind of guilty <laughs> i would not compare acts of vengeance to Inferno. no inferno's better inferno's better but that's but you know it's not yeah you happen to be a better writer but like it's not like you are above the concept oh, yeah, i don't yeah. know I, yeah i'm gonna stand up for inferno too in terms of it can be goofy and whatever but at least it's like motivated from yeah. the dynamic that happens there and the things that happen mm -hmm. in the event like and the transformations that happen there are about I having the it. characters react to that so i mean it is mm -hmm. more character driven than something like Acts it's of good yeah it's yeah. good and Acts of vengeance isn't is what it comes down to inferno well, i mean good. i, I want to get back to sort of like i found it interesting that Andrew was just like right off the bat like no I don't like I don't like events because events have worked traditionally very differently sort of in the X-Men franchise versus in the Avengers franchise right and like even it gets us back to that the Claremont Byrne cameos here you know the X office and the Avengers office slash Fantastic Four office right and that makes me think about the presence of Rick Jones here <laughs> this like staple of the Avengers line and how goofy as heck he is here and what he's kind of doing here and in terms of this whole comic sort of self-reflexive approach to crossovers is this whole comic kind of about the x-men brand versus the avengers brand and is rick kind of like at the center of that in some way i don't know that i would say it's it's so much x-men versus avengers because i don't think excalibur is a traditional x team that's that's a good point yeah um, and you know and so i think that piece of the equation would be missing a bit i do think it's commentary on event driven comics and i and i do think claremont is throwing himself under the bus along with marvel comics because the dialogue from the elder of the universe to nightcrawler he says, oh, those two over there, they're always back and forth, back and forth. Nothing's sacred where they're concerned and even less is safe. And so, you know, this events, even by this early point, have become a, a one-upsmanship, right? They've just become this contest of who can do something bigger and better. And they've, you know, Claremont and Byrne are getting firmly into the crosshairs of that. You know, they're they're being called out for that. So I do think it's, it's a, a sort of meta-narrative on the nature of comics and events in general. And I think Claremont is, and Davis are both saying, look, at the end of the day, it's just dumping our toy boxes out and having, you know, our, our action figures fight each other. And hey, that's actually okay. There's a layer of that that's just a lot of fun. I mean, I like to think of Secret Wars Volume 1 as the first Michael Bay movie. Like, it, you know, it was, <laughs> it was fun to see and it was fun to eat popcorn at. By the fifth Michael Bay movie, I was like, yeah, okay, I've done this. I don't know that I, you know, I'd like a little more nuance and depth, but the first one was exciting. And um, and so I think he's just, you know, sort of, for lack of a better term, kind of just taking the piss out of, you know, events and himself and just how bloated it all feels. And, you know, that's definitely something that Claremont notices, right? Like it's, you know, whenever there's excess or, or bloat, you know, it's a, 
it's actually a negative term he uses quite a bit in his X-Men books. But I think he's just, he's poking and poking and poking at it. But he's also firmly putting himself in the crosshairs, which I really like, actually. I Had he not been in that scene with Byrne, it actually, for me, would have felt as petty as Byrne's scenes do <laughs> about Claremont. Well, maybe just to ask a question of Anna, because she's Nightcrawler's PR manager. Nightcrawler <laughs> is self-aware. Maybe for like the first time ever, with the possible exception of Cockrum's miniseries. Hey, he says he's had enough of Byrne and Claremont to last a lifetime. How did you react to that? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I have anything particular to, to add to that. I do like the little hints of Kurt's self-awareness. I mean, even he gets a nice little reflective moment while he's changing clothes, like reflecting on like why he still wears his old costume and stuff and that's like a wonderful little introspective character moment thrown in the middle of like total like chaotic zaniness right i know that burn wasn't a particular fan of nightcrawler and that was like a point of tension between him and claremont like among many points of tension so i mean the fact that nightcrawler sort of shines once burn leaves the series is notable but i mean i don't know if i have a sophisticated thought on it beyond that i like the thought the self-awareness of this universe this is again i've said i'm I'm also a big She-Hawk fan. I loved Burns run on She-Hawk at this time. And I'm reading both books and I got the joke at that time of, oh, wow, he's really... Well, uh, again, also, as you pointed out, Burns' jabs at Claremont are not subtle no, um, no. at all. <laughs> so so it's, it's very clear when Burns do it. So I got the joke that Claremont was was fighting back in this. I love that this is a this is a universe where Kurt is meta aware. Claremont and Byrne are sitting right there, and this goes into all of the parallel world stuff that Andrew and I were talking about. You know, four episodes ago, like I really did enjoy what was happening here at that time, and then reading it back again this week. Yeah, I very much enjoyed it. It's like, oh wow, they're really being aware of it, and. For for me, what shines is at the very end, I talked about the multiple histories theory where you can't tell how somebody got there. Galactus is aware of what's going on. Yeah. And maybe Impossible Man is. But Galactus, if I'm reading it correctly, knows that he is in this universe and not the 616 universe, is a single being who came from the 616 universe to eat this world because it's stupid. So, like, <laughs> I, so, so I, I like that storyline. I, I like the acknowledgement, not just Cl Claremont and Byrne. Galactus, the all-powerful being in this universe, is just saying, this is ridiculous. <laughs> These people do not deserve to live. Please just leave because <laughs> because because this world's too dumb to go on and uh, and like I I love that about it and of course it does go on and because again acts of vengeance was starting right now in the comics this is Claremont saying I don't want a piece of this one and I'm taking my toys you know my toys are Excalibur so I started my cross tie and caper two months ago I'm taking it off the board I don't have to deal with your stupid crossover ha <laughs> ha bye you know so. and to use to use Fantastic Four characters in Galactus and Impossible man to have that commentary on the end like a title that burn was working on at the time i think too there's there's an interesting point being made about seriousness and about actual stakes because galactus is the world devourer right like he when galactus arrives things get very serious and and it's one you know the fantastic four 50 when he first arrives on earth is one of the most famous comics of all time so i think claremont is saying you know hey look this acts of vengeance thing and this this repetitive cycle of event 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 is spiraling out of control remember when it was it was sacred or remember when it was more it was special like when galactus arrived at earth that was heavy and yeah. that was serious and so it's kind of funny to have galactus again somebody that also very close Closely connected with Byrne, it's funny to have him arrive and sort of pull the curtain. And I think it's interesting because this is the first hint we get that Phoenix and Galactus are unique beings in the multiverse. That there's only one of them. They're, you're not going to encounter rep, you know, replicants, or you're not going to sorry, go a little Blade Runner on you. You're not going to encounter <laughs> multiversal counterparts of them. And I, I think it's funny because he, he like he says to Phoenix, she says, "Hey, you promised you wouldn't come back and destroy the Earth," which he did in Fantastic Four. And he goes, "Oh, that was a different Earth. You know that." And so that even that level of self awareness is really interesting. I just think it's funny. There are so many layers of satire in here. But there are equally a, a, a number of layers of just a, a little bit of a bemoaning from Claremont, you know, maybe a loss of what makes comics special, right? Like it should be a big deal when Galactus shows up. He shouldn't be there to close the door on an episode of The Muppets, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I like the thing that this issue does where like there are stakes involved here. Like, I mean, one of the ways that you do a really successful satire is to approach it seriously, right? And something like the Hank Pym thing is really horrifying. It is an injection of like, we talked a little bit about body horror in the last issue, but this is sort of another instance of that. And I feel like some of the shifts that happen throughout this issue, like going from some of the zany goofiness to suddenly like, oh my God, because that's a moment of reckoning with the consequences of superpowers, right? I mean, that's like an almost like Watchmen-esque thing, right? This superhero that look at the consequences of his powers. He's destroying the world and he's just growing larger and larger and seems to have an actual apathy about the damage he's causing. Like, I mean, did you guys feel that as well? Like kind of that shifting tones and was that part of what makes this kind of successful and appealing? And is that part of the self-reflexivity that's going on here? And he dies. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Namor Namor kills him. Namor just straight up killed him. And I, so yes. But even even his death causes all this damage. It's like kind of a horrifying scene. And it, it's a scene we would see again in Old Man Logan in that universe when Mark Miller and, and Steve McNiven do that little side arc because there is a part of the United States that is the skeleton of Hank Pym. Yeah, you know, in giant yeah. form. So it, it is a it is a haunting image that echoes out, you know, even forward in, in comic continuity. So, and, and, but it, you know, and you guys have talked about this at length, that that shifting tone is part of what makes Excalibur Excalibur. I mean, if you think about it, this issue is so dense, you know, we spend a good third of it in this, you know, new age medieval realm, you know, with, with Princess Di and Prince Charles. <laughs> and then we yeah. spend a good portion of it on this impossible earth. And it's all in the same issue. In fact, when you suggested that you know, I could could come on for episode 14. I thought, oh, that's great. That's a double-sized issue. Because in my brain, it was a double-sized issue. And, mm-hmm. and then when I went to read it, I go, oh, no, it's normal-sized. It's just <laughs> it's just dense. It is dense. It is dense. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the character work, too, which I think is related to that, you know, genre bending that we're always talking about and the way it so successfully shifts tones. Because I was complaining before about one of the things that I sometimes find lacking in crossovers is that depth character work. And I think this is such a great issue of Excalibur because it preserves that character work in the midst of all the zaniness and that's where it's sort of finding some of its groundedness as well so i'll put it to you guys were there particularly good sort of character moments that stood out to you in this issue i've got some of my own answers but we didn't talk a lot about the first third that's like set in back in the medieval magical london world and there's some interesting stuff that goes on there in terms of the evolving love triangles and things that are going on here oh i was gonna say one like this is not really answering your question because it's not in the the medieval part but there were two beats there were two beats that I really liked. The the one was um, when the wave is coming and they're on the cliff and Brian gets to science and he seems yes, so yes. happy. Because Brian doesn't want to be Captain Britain. Brian wants to be Kitty Pride, uh, And he yeah. gets to do that for a moment. I really like that. And the other one that I, I adored, which was kind of a joke, was um, uh, when Megan shows up with her new costume and Kitty is really jealous yes. that she got to have a new costume. That was a good one. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the Brian thing because as I've been editing episodes, like a number of our guests have described Brian as like the dumb jock. I get that description of him because it is often his role in the series, and yet he's a scientist. Like yeah. that's like who he is supposed well, to be. Well, that's the interesting thing about Brian, be. right? Brian should be the smartest person in any room that he walks into. He is a Marvel Omni scientist. He is brilliant, except that Kitty's standing there. Like, what do you do when you're Tony Stark if Reed Richards is around all the time? And that's the world that Brian lives in. So his job his role is to be dumb muscle and i think there's an inferiority about that he knows kitty's smarter than him you know? <laughs> like, like he's he's commenting on it in in issues he knows that she's he's like oh it reminds me of me she reminds me of me when i was that age but he knows that she's smarter i wish we got a little bit more of that with some of the brian character building like some of his jealousy and dissatisfaction with the role i we're gonna get that a little bit more heading forward but it's really been an element of the story that's been dropped for like many issues now i, I think too that it's important to remember where he's coming from in this series, which Claremont just, you guys have talked about this, Claremont just assumes the reader will know, which would be impossible yeah. at the time. I didn't yeah. know the, the Captain Britain archives back then. But, you know, he dies brutally at the hands of the Fury and he goes through the whole Jasper's War and he comes into Excalibur knowing that the price of death and, you know, he's lost his sister and he's lost just, you know, everybody he, he cares for. And I think it's funny because I used to read Brian as, you know, kind of a himbo in this book. And I used to think he was the, that dumb job. I think I was a, was a fitting term, but in in reading it again along with the show, I've found myself empathizing with him more. As and I think what he is doing, and I think Claremont is doing this, is he's numbing himself not just with alcohol, but I think he's turning, he's dialing everything down, including his emotions, his ability to connect to others, his ability to think you know, and, and to cognitively process in the way he had before. And he's just reacting in 
binaries like hit, you know, don't hit. And I think it's, it's a reaction to pain, a reaction to fear and a reaction to having what happened to him in his Captain Britain run and then coming into Excalibur off the death of his sister. And the, the course of Claremont's, you know, somewhat abbreviated run on this book is a lot of him doing that and then slowly learning to re maybe reopen himself, you know, to, to those emotions and, and processing what he's actually feeling. And a lot of that is, is spurred by Megan, but I just think it's interesting. I, I, as a child or even not even just as a child, but you know, for many, many years, I read him, you know, that same way. And, and I think Claremont is depicting him in that way, but there are moments, you know, especially in this issue where he, the ogre knocks him over into food. And instead of reacting, he reacts in a very British manner. He reacts in a very muted, oh, it's okay, I'm fine. You know, he handles himself, you know, in, in sort of that manner. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but do you think that Claremont's showing him maybe muting himself or do you think I'm I'm overreading it and he's just yeah, kind of a big no. jerk? No, <laughs> oh, you're definitely you. right. I read that him falling into the food thing as and him not reacting as that's supposed to be a character growth moment for him. He also has a character growth moment where, I mean, it is character growth for Brian because it, ex it establishes who he is. But the second, Rachel shows him the Nigel doppelganger's internal thoughts. Brian's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm going to murder you. Yeah. Like he, yeah. Mean, he and Rachel don't, he and Rachel don't even like each other that much. No. He's constantly annoyed by her, but apparently just the vulgarity of Nigel's thoughts are enough for Brian to literally say, nope, killing you now because <laughs> <laughs> you're repulsive, which I think says a lot about, even though it's not the real Nigel, it says a lot about who Nigel is and who Brian is that, you know, just to have that in, in this very parody issue, that beat's important. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, you know, he's being the guy who's going to beat up a guy to protect like a woman. And that's like, gender trope written all over it but at the same time having it established that brian thinks nigel's thoughts are disgusting still matters in terms of his understanding and treatment of women and so like it does matter it's gendered but it's who brian is right brian's yeah. job is to be the the blonde white superhero that we've talked about before. i like seeing him have a little bit of self-consciousness too about the curtain megan thing we finally get a thought bubble in which he's aware of it when oh god i i really am getting more into curtain megan kind of as the series goes along and god they're so Excellent. charming in this issue where <laughs> they just are going off on their own with these mischievous expressions and just going dancing and oh yeah it really makes me want to root for them yeah, yeah, Kitty's yeah. Always been everybody's aware of kind of aware of it at this point what do you think his inactivity says when he notices them dancing and megan is transformed and he says like you know do you think i'm so thick i wouldn't notice but he doesn't act you know he doesn't he doesn't speak he doesn't fly off in a rage he just sits back and watches do you think that reveals something about not only maybe where he is emotionally but is is he maybe reflecting in some way on how he's been behaving with Courtney slash Saturnine I mean I want to do a deep read of it in terms of we'd seen like he had a tendency to just sort of escape the sort of domestic test of the lighthouse and go to his London apartment or whatever and here he is stuck with the team on the cross time caper and can't escape and he's forced into some of those interpersonal dynamics in a way that he had been avoiding before so I don't know if that's like part of it in terms of the character growth that's going on with him within this space I do think Brian is more sympathetic in this issue than he had been in the past and that is a scene where I think he's sympathetic as well that he does react calmly because there's a sadness to that right like he's seeing his own inadequacy and he's seeing how much happier his girlfriend is with another man and how much fuller and how much more complete she is I and mean, that's the you know it's it's the you know if you've ever been in a relationship and it's ended and then you see your ex with a new person and you're like oh that's them fully shining mm -hmm. like that's you know yeah. they, that person wasn't at their best with me you know there is a, a bittersweetness to that where you're happy for them but you're also sort of sad and I, I do I do find Brian more relatable in this issue than I have throughout the rest of this series thus far yeah for sure other other character moments that we we wanted to highlight because I think there's a few other ones. I, I did like the Kitty and Alistair one too, where they. Oh. <laughs> Which one? The one where it's like 10 to the power of 23 and he's like that means and she's like i know what it means yeah my for me i think this this issue does a lot of character development and through clothing you know yes. we talked about briefly the fact that megan gets her new outfit there are several moments in this and it, it starts at the very beginning when um you see them on the balcony on page two and everyone's loving their regal garb except Rachel who's got her arms crossed in the screw this 
you know, why am I dressed <laughs> like this? Like, I love that she is just uncomfortable because they're making her wear royal clothing just for this photo op. That's all she's got to have it for. And yet she still hates it. So that moment mattered to me, especially since everyone else is just so super comfy with it. E even Kitty and her ridiculousness of it. But then once they're back on the train, Rachel has, you know, presumably telekinesis herself back into her regular outfit. But the fact that they have to modify the Kitty and Megan outfits with scissors, I, you know, I love. And then we get another moment of Kitty pointing out how much she hates cheerleaders for, you know, yeah. it's like, it's like, dude, you know, lighten up a little bit. <laughs> but apparently Kitty is just very anti-cheerleader that came up, that came up during Inferno. So I love that. Oh, and of course, Megan obviously looks like a supermodel in everything that she wears because that's who she is. But then when Megan gets what for me is the classic Megan costume and she seems so comfortable. And I know it's not her first costume, but this is how I think of Megan because, you know, it's what becomes her costume for most of Excalibur's run and some variation of it even after that. Like, you know, um, what she's wearing today, Megan in green is always a variation on this design. So I love that moment and I love the comfort of it and Kirk gets to see it first which is another thing about their yeah, you know about their relationship yeah yeah like Brian doesn't get to see her new outfit I mean he does eventually but you know she she wants to know his opinion she chose this for herself which is something Megan doesn't do a lot of she doesn't make a lot of choices but presumably she went in a closet uh, Mysterio offered them clothing Nightcrawler's like yep I'm getting my one outfit that I own and <laughs> Megan's like nope I'm gonna get this thing in green with M boots or whatever <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a tradition here too of dating back to issue eight of Secret Wars Volume One, where they're in, in the midst of battle, there shall come a costume where Spider-Man gets the <laughs> black costume, which is eventually Venom and all of those shenanigans. And so there is a nice little playful bit here too, where it, it wasn't an uncommon trope back then that during events, one of the markers of them would be that characters would emerge with new costumes, and and mm -hmm. I think that's part of the role that events play is they they mark the passing of time. You know, it's it's sort of like being an educator, right? You can remember certain years better than others because you're like oh i had that student that year oh i remember it was that year because that was the year i taught this subject or i taught this course and i think there's a, a marking of passage of time in comics that's similar it's like oh this was the acts of vengeance era this was the secret wars era and so i i think there's a, a purposefulness to the communication through clothing because it also marks you know where were they in the adventure and and i think it's interesting too because they're all getting more comfortable you know now that captain britain has this costume that was worn by their previous hero in this universe even his posture is different i mean he's back to being more, I don't know if I'd say regal, but he has more of a, a physical presence. He clearly feels more comfortable. Megan gets her new costume. It's green like the earth. She feels more comfortable. You know, Kurt gets back in his a version of his previous costume. He feels more comfortable. And then Kitty looks like a cheerleader. And so, you know, the, I, I think you're right, Mab, that clothing is speaking so much about the characters and the themes in this book. And it really highlights for me, a, I don't know if you guys felt this way too, but Kitty is such a brat in this comic that she reads she reads so much more appropriately like a 15-year-old in this comic than I think she does in most of most issues, you know, where she's sort of more precocious. But did, did you find her particularly bratty too? Yeah, that's what I love about her. I, I love that, that Kitty is, I, I've said this on several episodes, Kitty is the girl that when you're 15, you're supposed to think that I should I could date her, but you couldn't because Kitty would hate you because she'd know <laughs> that she was better than you are. Kitty only dates older boys. That's what she does. You know, she's the girl who says, you know, I have a boyfriend in college, like in every sentence, in, in every sentence, and which is, you know, perfect for, you know, me reading this as a sophomore. <laughs> and that's who she is. I love that about her. But yeah, she is bratty and it's realistically so. She's delightfully bratty. Even that thing that, that Anna said where, where she's talking to Alistair and he's like, oh, well, 10 to 23. And, and she's like, fuck you, don't mansplain. <laughs> exponents to me i so I, I got it <laughs> I, I understand how exponents work i know what that number is <laughs> and 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 she's got the you know she's got the the bleeding anger word balloon which is such a nice little, <laughs> such a nice little touch the other thing i have to add about clothes because we've talked about nightcrawler's clothes before on the podcast that he is particularly excited to be in the fancy dress medieval world clothes and makes a cute little joke about how splendid he looks and that was just absolutely <laughs> adorable does. Because it's exciting for him to like, you know, get to experiment with his identity in these places in which he's not treated like a freak and a monster, right? I mean, that's part of why Cross Time Caper is such a like particularly sort of successful escape for him. And I mean, that goes back to like me comparing it to the 85 Cockrum series, right? Where he gets to experience conflicts that aren't 
necessarily always related to people trying to like kill him with pitchforks, right? Which is fun for him because we get to see him grow as a character in ways that he's not just a persecuted outsider, right? He's in a Ren fair all the time for a while. <laughs> and that's <laughs> Well, I feel like I'm thinking about their different reactions to the clothes and I'm just like, well, Megan's a shapeshifter, so she can change, you know, anytime anyway. Rachel can transmute her clothes fit. Kitty is okay with the dress until they go back into the superhero environment and then she's like, I'm done with this. Like it was okay for a while. I feel like Kurt actually probably would have been happy to just wear that outfit forever. It's like, this is how I would dress if yeah. I was just dressing myself, but I'm not allowed to dress like this back home. Oh, there'd be a scarf. <laughs> there would be, you're right. <laughs> there would totally be a scarf. But it's just, it, anybody drawn by Alan Davis is so attractive automatically. I mean, I just think this, you know, Alan Davis swoopy hair had a generation of kids all up and down the Kinsey scale because this is just, <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, everybody looks beautiful. And, and so, yeah, when he makes that comment, it cracked me up because he's like, you almost look as good as I do. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I will say too, one last Nightcrawler thing I'd see at kind of this point in the series, although his artwork has been like Alan Davis's artwork has been great throughout and I've loved his modeling of Nightcrawler throughout. He is developing his modeling of Nightcrawler like sort of throughout the series and I see it becoming like a little bit more concrete here like he develops a visual language for him where he really stands like a dancer and stuff right mm -hmm. with like a very arched spine and like a foot out and stuff and he's sort of he'd always drawn Kurt a little bit sort of taller and more masculine than he'd been drawn by some other artists but he's actually doing that more and more I find as the series goes on because I have this theory about Alan Davis just being so in love with Kurt he can't restrain himself past a point it just starts <laughs> making him look more and more like a Hollywood movie star but like also still with that visual language that's specific to him like that dancerly quality that he always poses him with you know if you see Kurt and Brian standing next to each other like Brian will be standing like so solid right and then Kurt will be there with like yeah like a hip tilt or like one foot forward and kind of his spine arched a little bit because that's just how he moves that's just how he walks and Brian's a linebacker yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. I mean it, which it not is that's not an insult I mean Brian is Brian is a brick of a man and Kurt is you call him a dancer I think that's one of the reasons why I know I know you're coming around it's what makes him visually match Megan more because Megan is elegance personified. That's, I mean, Megan in the in her usual stance anyway. She walks on her tiptoes at all times because she's a ballerina. That's what she is. You know, like there's no reason why she can't walk with flat feet, but she doesn't almost ever. Yeah, there's a reason why, like multiple times when writing fan fictions, I've done the moment where Kurt and somebody fall for each other in the context of them sharing a dance, which has happened in comics at various times. Um. On that note, um, any final thoughts, things that we didn't get to that you're desperate to get to before we wrap up? I have just one silly thing. I always have one silly thing. Go um, for it. <laughs> the, um, there's three panels of the ogre from two issues ago. Yeah. And this just very much cements to me that the ogre is Catherine's sex slave. That, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, like he's like he's so jovial and he's just like uh you know the mistress said i gotta do this so you know uh, right right before he hits uh, right before he hits brian on the back you know we saw him before with his you know his bondage outfit and his butch t-shirt and and now he's in this tux and it's just like there's stuff that goes on between catherine and the ogre and i'm not judging i mean I, i'm all about it you know like but but like the she he just seems so much in her control you know when i when i read him here as to how i write read him a couple of issues ago so i Jeez. love the ogre my like fan and interpretation was like about kurt and romance and dancing and yours was about Catherine making this ogre her sex slave i'm here for it though i'm here for it you know it's a, it's, it's a it's a relationship that i think you know we've talked to, we've talked from the very first issue about how excalibur in many ways you know yes it's a sex farce but it's not just the sex farce it's introducing a very young mav to a world of which he was yeah, previously yeah. unaware there's a lot that goes in here in here with bdsm and kink and you know the ogre was very intentionally that and now he is even though not in garb he is very still very intentionally showing his submissiveness to this relationship yeah. no i think that's fair that's fair i like that reading any other final thoughts i would just point out the and Andrew had mentioned this quickly, the coffins, the the capsules that Phoenix places the team in so that they survive the tsunami. I mean, they're they're absolutely supposed to remind you of the capsule that Jean Grey was in. 
in Jamaica Bay when you know she was placed there by the Phoenix Force in that big revelation, which Claremont wasn't a fan of. And I love that when we cut to them after the tsunami has dissipated, it says some not inconsiderable time later. I mean, I think it was just a nice little shot of like, <laughs> how long was Jean under that water? What, what was she doing? Under that? I, I just think it was Claremont, you know, showing some restraint, but but just taking one little shot at the Phoenix Recon. And I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really cute. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Andrew, I'll give you the final thought if you've got something you'd like to add. Yeah, it's it's a cheap trick, but I really like when uh, alternate universe stories do something that's really evocative and they don't tell you how we got there. Like, I, I love that in Bendis's run, Quentin Cop. Quentin Quire comes back as like Phoenix from the X-Men. How did that happen? Um, in this one, Captain America Deathlock. I can't <laughs> stop thinking about that. I would read the hell out of that. I, 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 I want to know the origin story there. Except that I More than Silver it's... Skateboarder? Because Silver Skateboarder is one that I <laughs> No, <have>. no. <laughs> Captain America Deathlock. That's, that's a great story. In my head, anyway. Fair. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do. I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. We don't have a Sword Strokes letters page this month, so I think we will wrap things up there. Sean, this is your last chance to plug your pluggables for our listeners. Where can people find you? Tell us again about your other podcasts and the other work you get up to and where people can follow you online. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, the three of you, for a, an unbelievably enjoyable show that I listen to. I look forward to every week. It's a really oh. nice ending to the week. And, and I just I hope you know that your work is much appreciated, your humor, your joy, your analysis, you know, definitely approaching comics from an angle that I, I don't see often on podcasts and I love it. So, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for letting me join you and yeah, listeners, you can find me on the pulp to pixel podcast network. And again, you know, probably the show that would be most closely connected to this one would be Marvel superhero secret wars and beyond, which is a, a delightful romp through all of those mini series. And like I said, we're, we're about to wrap up the, Jonathan Hickman, Esad Ribic Mini, which is a brilliant treatise. It's probably the best Doctor Doom story ever told. And, and I, you know, if people are interested, I'd love to have them listen in. And those current X-Men fans who are just kind of getting into the work of Hickman now, perhaps might be interested in revisiting that particularly. Yeah, his whole work, all of his work for Marvel is one big story. And you can really see it if, if you read it in, in its entirety. It's, it's quite staggeringly brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. We will have that linked in our show notes for sure. Next, in one week's time, we will not be on to Excalibur number 15. We are taking a swerve off the path of the cross-time caper to cover the one, the only, Mojo Mayhem, with some Lil guest stars, and I do mean Lil, in the form of the X-Babies. That's right, Andrew Demand's favorite story, Mojo Mayhem. We've got an excellent guest lined up to talk about it. You're not going to want to miss it, and we'll be back to our issue-by-issue read-through after that. Mojo Mayhem was supposed to take place prior to the cross-time caper, so we're slotting it in here. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out to us via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another very self-aware conversation. Thank you, Sean, for lending us your expertise. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Wow, I'm clearly on my podcasting limit. That was a rough episode. <laughs> <laughs> I will be recording.